How's your weekend going? Let's see if we can keep the momentum going. And feedback. Welcome to Portico Church, Arlington. My name's Jason. It's my privilege to be with you and open up the Word of God. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. We handed out, I don't have one up here today, but we handed out scripture journals like this guy back here named Johnny Reeve has. If you don't have a black scripture journal for Ruth, we have one for you. Does anybody not have one? Don't be embarrassed. Okay, good. So we're using these as we walk through Ruth to kind of log and to keep track of where God is leading us and leading you. Uh, So I encourage you to do that today. Um, As we get ready to jump into the text, um, let me ask you, have you ever had a turning point in your life? You know I'm talking about that? Where something has so fundamentally changed in your life or you were forced with a decision, probably a decision you didn't want to make, where that you knew where the, the, the stakes were high, the risks were high, and if you were going to make this decision, you were consciously going to need to embrace loss and to embrace pain for this hope that there's a future payoff or a future gain. That's how turning points work. And what's key to a turning point is you have to let go of everything else. There's no way to say, I'm going to try this out. No, you either get on or you get off. Like you're, you're ha- you have to let go of everything else. That's how turning points work. Um, always risk, and they can change your whole life. I mean, what are some of the basic ways we experience that? A lot of times it's wrapped up in a relationship, right? It could be a relationship that you're engaged or married, or maybe a relationship that falls apart. Um, I think getting pregnant, that's kind of a turning point. It's, th- these are consequences that are irreversible. Like you cannot change them. Right? You can throw your phone in the ocean. I've wanted to do that many times. Kind of a turning point. There's lots of ways you can experience this and feel this. But many times, just honestly, or like a huge move. Maybe moving to this area is a, is a turning point for you. You see it as that. Um, I remember just a few, like maybe a year ago, I was talking to one of my kids. And I guess, parents, side note, things go on when your kids get older and they keep it from you. Parents don't know. And it's a good thing. So one of my kids is telling me uh, they were away in college. And like, oh, and they're all graduated now. But he's like, oh, yeah, I was off the rails. I was going off the cliff at warp factor nine. You didn't know about it. And here's what was going on. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Now, this happens in college, right? This is why nobody really graduates in four years. There's one where one year you just spin out, right? And this kid of mine was spinning out, and I didn't know about it. And I said, well, what, what, what happened? And he said, well, I had the big sister talk. Right? Big sister called me. And she's like, what are you doing? And she, and she got him. And, she, and she's like, no, 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 no. Like, you are going to ruin your life. Right? So she gave, she drew him back. Like, this is not what God has for you. Don't be an idiot. Right? Right? She, don't. Show up. And so she kind of talked him off the ledge, and I was like, you know, being a dad, I'm like, wow, why, why didn't you call me? He's like, is that even a question? Like, you would have sued everybody, and you know, like, she pulled me out of college and like overreacted. Oh, that's fair. I would have done all that. So, <laughs> but it, he's like, you know what, Dad? That was a turning point for my life. It was a turning point. God used my sister, and I'm like, wow, amazing, right? <laughs> amazing. I write that down on my journal. 
So as we jump into this text today, it's a good one. It's a hard one. It's so full of life. Um, as I thought about our church, I thought about us, I thought about you, um, you're full of turning points. It is the season of your life. I've already made my decisions. My life's over. <laughs> but you are full of turning points. And in my heart of hearts, man, I want you to finish. And I know that as we get up, as you grow older, as we, as we, as we mature as people, um, not everybody's going to make it. And what I see in your eyes and what I see in our community is some of us are getting so disoriented by loss and pain, we're just wondering if it's worth it anymore. We're wondering, like, is following Jesus really worth the loss that I'm going to experience? And, and, oh, by the way, where is he? This is a turning point in Ruth. Now, it's weird because it comes in the very front of the book. And usually in literature, the turning point doesn't. But we, we learn something about Ruth and Naomi that sets the whole trajectory of this whole book. It reveals so much. So I'm going to challenge you as we jump into this text. I want you to watch the risks that both of them take. Because you will not... Risk is always involved you have one of these decisions to make. I want you to watch this. And I'm going to challenge you this. Listen to Aunt Naomi. Right? She's gone through some things that I pray that you never will. And listen to your big sister, Ruth. She's got a courage that all of us would love to have. So as God has put this in his word for us, I'm going to challenge you to listen to them. Like we do not want to waste. Do not waste the life that God has given you. It's so easy to do, all right? So before we jump into the text, let's just quickly review where we started. This is Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's a short story, Wisdom. Um, it's historical. Happened almost 3,100 years ago, maybe, maybe around 1100 BC, kind of the first Iron Age. So you, we're, we have to jump into a completely different world if we're going to understand Ruth. Yes, and some things are going to sound very strange, However, some things about Ruth feel so familiar, like what we talked about last week. It's right after the book of Judges, and the book of Judges ends by saying what? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, we think living a life where I will pursue my happiness above all else. That is the point of life. The point of life is to be happy. So you do what makes you happy. Nobody should be able to take that away from you. We thought this was a modern problem. This is not a modern problem. That was what was going on in Israel. They had forgotten God. They had forgotten how to love and how to live. So this is the spirit of the age in this book. So this is the backdrop to the book of Ruth. What basically happened? There's a famine in the promised land. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, led them out into Moab, their enemy, Led them away from God's presence, away from God's people, away from his provision. They spent a decade there. Elimelech dies, her sons die, and she's left. So this is, this is how far we got last week. And we learned that every move matters. When you submit your life to God, every move matters for this simple reason. 
every circumstance has got to submit to God's plan for your life. But I don't want the things I'm in. Yeah, I know. But you do want this. You do want to walk the road that God has laid before you in faith. I promise you, you want that. You want that. So we're going to continue on in the story today, and I want you to watch for the risks that are taken. And that's kind of the, the, the big idea of this text. When you watch Naomi, and specifically Ruth, because she starts to come to the forefront of the story, she chooses to risk everything on God's goodness. This is the call of the text. Do it. Risk everything on the goodness of God. It will make you let go of things you never thought you could let go of. It'll let you walk to places you never thought you could go. And Naomi and Ruth are just kind of tangled up together in this. So we will walk through this together. So before I jump in, um, I just want you to understand the risk involved in this. So this is not light. So watch for it. Watch for it. Watch for the risk. All right, so we're just going to walk up and um, just walk through the text together. I'm not going to pre-read it. I'm going to pick up right where we left off from last week. This is going to be in verse 6. It'll be up on the screen for us. So she has just lost her husband and her two sons, and she's left with her daughter-in-laws, who are Moabites, Ruth and Orpah. Verse 6. Then she that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And she said to her, No, we will not return. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back. My daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. You pray with me, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you so much um, for the gift of your word. It belongs to you. We pray that you might open our eyes together, that we might behold its beauty and its treasure, all to your glory, in the name of Jesus. So what you're going to see is Naomi, and specifically Ruth, risk everything on the goodness of the Lord. But you see Ruth, well, you don't see Ruth, you see Naomi is not there yet. 
So how do we do that? What does the process look like of risking everything on the goodness of the Lord? Everything on his goodness. First is this, and we, we saw it right in this passage, right in this movement, right off the bat, verses 6 through 14. You've got to let go of false gods. There is no moving in God's will for your life. There is no risking everything on God's goodness until you decide to let go of false gods. What do you mean by that? Well, we'll get there. So what's going on in this narrative? Like, why do they need to let go of anything? Well, first, God has visited his people. Naomi has heard while in Moab that the Lord has shown up and given food to his people. So last week we talked about the covenant curse of famine coming when, God, when the people forget God. So he is in his mercy, in his grace. We don't know why. The narrator doesn't tell us. God has visited Israel with food. So it's time to go back. She wants to go back to Bethlehem where she's from. But she's telling her daughters-in-law, don't go with me. Listen, you have a future in Moab. You do not have a future with me. My husband's dead. I have nothing here. My sons are dead. You have nothing here. Now she talks about why would you wait for me to raise up sons? So the tradition and the law out of Deuteronomy was that if um, if your brother dies you would take on his wife to raise up children for him, specifically so that his name would not be blotted out, so that he would have a a promise, right? That he would have a part in God's promised land. Now, that's weird. We'll talk about that because the story depends on that, and it opens up more on that. But understand, that's what she's talking about. Like, I don't have anything for you. I have no sons for you. Even if I did, you couldn't wait that long. Nobody in Israel wants to see a Moabite walk into the land. Do you know how embarrassing it's going to be for Naomi to go back? Do you know how humbled she's going to be to walk back into Bethlehem and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we left a decade ago. Shouldn't have done it. And I'm coming back on my own. My husband died. My sons are dead. And I brought a Moabite with me. That's the, that's the tension there. But note this. Do you see the real love with these women? Do you see that there's a real love between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth? But she's bitter. She's walked a road that nobody, well, people have walked this road. But she's bitter. She feels like the Lord's hand has been against her. So letting go of false gods. She's got to do it. False gods always promise you Security. So what is a false god? Like, well, I don't worship a god in Moabite. All right. Remember, when they left, when Elimelech took Naomi and her family out of Israel, they were in effect turning their back on God and looking to fill their needs elsewhere. They were chasing bread. It's going to be too difficult to stay here. It sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But God would have called them to repent with his people and to stay on station, to stay in the pocket, and to trust him. So what is a false god? It's a good thing that becomes a God thing. It can be, it can be a good thing like food in this instance. Everybody needs food. You know that. It's a good thing. It's a gift. But in this case, it caused Elimelech and Naomi to disobey God and to leave his presence, to leave his people, to leave the land and go look to get their needs satisfied elsewhere. 
False gods always do that. And they feel like they're essential for you to thrive. I've got to have this. And you will protect them like a junkyard dog. You know that you're dealing with what we would call spiritual idolatry or false gods based on your emotional response. Um, we have a little slide that will kind of help understand that. We're just going to put it up there. Kinda, it kind of explains what idolatry feels like. For instance, we can give you some categories like power and affirmation and comfort and control. These are things that we will hold onto up and above God. For instance, if I have affirmation, if, if I have your opinion of me and I can control it, I don't really need God. And I will break God's law. I will leave him to get it from you. Hey, as long as I'm in power... I'm good. As long as I can control the circumstances, I'm good. And I, will, and I will do it at the expense of what's right. I will do it at the expense of God. So you see, it's insidious. So you cannot look at this text and go, well, I would never worship a false god. Anytime, anytime we sin, anytime you put your will above God's, you are doing just that. All right, so... If we're going to learn to risk everything on God's goodness first, we have got to let go of false gods, right? We have to learn to do that. And let me just tell you this. It is painful. You will, you will hold on to these white knuckle. Um, I struggle with affirmation. So when nobody likes me, it feels like I'm dying. It's just stupid. If I have the affirmation of God, if I have his word, and I can trust what he says of me, I do not need to live and die on my reputation. That's, that's false worship. Okay, so letting go for false gods. Um, and, and it seems unreasonable. Look at what she says in verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back. Go back. It, it makes no sense to come with me. Go back to your mother's house. In other words, go find another husband. You're young. You have a future. There's nothing for you where I'm going. Naomi knows this. She, she believes in the power of God. She believes in providence 100%. But she's really struggling with God's goodness. Are you there? When you struggle with God's goodness, he becomes less personal to you. And many times we do this when our timelines do not match up with the timelines of God. It, it's really difficult to feel like you're loved by God. So she's struggling with this. Can you blame her? But watch where her feet go. She leaves Moab and she goes back. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. So letting go of false God, it's going to seem unreasonable. Um, it's going to seem like you're dying sometimes, and it's going to be very, very risky for you to, to let go of false gods. You're going to put your life in a position where you're not in control. Right? But you can risk everything on God's goodness. Um, in the aviation industry, one of the things that they train new pilots, it's a very critical task. It's called an engine failure. It's basically an engine failure on the runway. Well, that's not too big of a deal if you're going very slow. But can you imagine how an airliner works? This airplane accelerates on the runway... Um, and once it gets to a certain speed, you have enough lift to fly. So the nose comes up and off you go. Imagine if you lost an engine just before you rotated that nose up. What do you do? Well, you know, yay math, we know what to do. So if you're at a certain speed, uh, and that speed is called V1, 
at that point, you are committed to take off. It doesn't matter what happens. Once you reach that speed, even if you need to be on that runway another 10 seconds, even if you get the engine fire light, or if an engine quits, you do not stop. You, you continue to take off. Now you're like, doesn't that sound risky? You would really take off with an engine fire? Yes, we would. And here's why. You don't have enough runway to stop. Once you get past that speed, that takeoff decision speed, if you pull the power levers back and stand on the brakes, a plane full of people and gas, you go off the end of the runway and it's a fireball. So they have trained pilots and they're very good at this. It's very safe. Don't freak out. Because, but when you're training a pilot, you know what they want to do? They'll do it a few times, but then you give them an engine fire, and they try to stop, and you push the, you, you stop the simulator. And you're like, you know what? Hey, when are, what are we supposed to do if we have a problem with the engine after V1? Oh, we, we continue right to, to rotation speed and take off. Right, what did you do? I stood on the brakes and tried to stop. What do you think is going to happen? We're going to crash. Yes, they know it, but the instinct is I can't let go of this. It's too risky to get off this runway. My safety is here. It's on the ground. I will not leave. If I get this thing airborne, who knows if I can get it back? And that, that is how false worship works. That, that is how false gods, your instinct is to hold on to these things with a white knuckle, just ferocity. Okay, so understand that about yourself. So as we walk through this text, as we jump into the next section, you have to ask yourself this. What is God calling you to let go of? And I, and I guarantee you this is not the first time he's called you to let go of it. Will you do anything to stay in power? Will you do anything to have affirmation? Will you do anything to have control? Our big God here is comfort. Will you do anything unless it disturbs your comfort? Okay. Okay. So first... We must let go of false gods. We're going to jump into verses 15 through 18. Naomi is still trying to negotiate. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. She's speaking to Ruth and saying, hey, Orpah is smart. She kissed me and left. You clung. So your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So it's not enough to let go of what God's calling you to let go of. You have got to go where God leads. You can't do one without the other. Did you pick up on what happened? Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. That word is covenant language. It's the same word used in Genesis 2.24. 
but he shall hold fast to his wife. It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 10.20 when Israel's called to hold fast or cling to God. So Ruth is not going to let go. She ties and binds her future to the future of Naomi. Why? She's going where God leads. I'm going to tell you this. We have a slide here that just kind of shows how this passage is broken up. What Ruth says to Naomi is probably one of the most powerful statements of covenant love in the Bible. If you want to understand what love looks like and feels like and how it operates, it's right there. You, you hear the voice of God breaking through. This feels like eternity when you read it because this is how God loves. This is how he does it. Well, how is Ruth doing it? I don't know. But the key is in the middle of this verse. I just want to show you this. It's a geek out for a minute. Just indulge me. Um, there's, this is kind of like poetry. Ruth has written with some rhyme to it. And What's beautiful about that is you see the turning point right there in the middle. So it's A, B, C, B, A. That's called a chiastic structure. Think of it as a mirror. The middle, which is C, your people shall be my, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. That is the core. That is the turning point for both Ruth and for Naomi. And she believes it with all her heart and everything else flows out of that. So you can see the correlation. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you down to the bottom A. It's like a mirror. And hey, if I do that, may I suffer the curse of God. B, for where you will go, I will lodge, even in the grave, all the way. Why? I no longer belong to Moab. I belong to Israel. I belong to you. And I belong to Yahweh. Do you know, the, do you know what she's saying? This is, this is repentance. There, there is no other way to look at it. This is turning back. This is abandoning everything that she knew. Do you know the cost here? Do you know the risk that she's saying? This is what Ruth says. And this is the turning point of the whole book. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. If you want to understand what it means to belong to Jesus, that's it. That's it. And all the consequences that go with it. You are fully putting your life, resting your life on him, fully belonging to him. Here's what Ruth is saying. I would rather risk the curse of Yahweh than have the blessing of my Moabite gods. Do you, feel, do you see that? Hang on to that. The whole book is about it. I would, have, I would rather risk the curse of Yahweh, who I know, she knew about Yahweh. All the Moabites did. They knew about what Yahweh did in Egypt. Who knows how much Naomi had taught her? We don't know. But she knows enough to trust in him. I would rather risk that than stay in Moab and have the blessing of my gods. Right? You know what this sounds like? Exodus 6-7, the thesis of the whole Bible, where God says, I will take you to be my people and you will be my God. And in Revelation, history wraps up with the same wording, and I will dwell with you. This sounds like she's just going to leave and go like 50 miles away. And what's the big deal? You can always come back. No, it didn't work that way in the ancient Near East. There was no such thing as a national identity and a religious identity. And 
It was all wrapped up into one thing. Let me just read this text here from Adele Berlin, who's great on the ancient Near East. She says, that in the ancient world, they had no mechanism for religious conversion or change of citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and people had defined one's ethnic identity. And this could no more be changed than the color of one's skin. A Moabite was always a Moabite no matter where you lived. And indeed, Ruth was referred to as such throughout the whole story. But from Ruth's point of view, she is becoming an Israelite. This is unheard of. This is, un- this is turning your back on every security that you had, any hope that she would ever marry again. You think anybody in Israel is going to marry her? No. I mean, just answer that for you. No. She's, any chance that she would have a future? I mean, Orpah... She, at least she went back with some reason. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, Naomi. No future. She's losing her identity. She's losing her family. And now she has to take care of a mother-in-law? That's a, that's a kind of a miracle, right? You, that, that is the power of God at work. It leads you to repentance. This is where God leads you. He leads you to his presence. You're always, you're always going to let go of false gods. You're always going to deal with provisions uh, and, 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 and just letting go, trusting in God's provision for your future, and you get a new people. You get a new citizenship. You get a new kingdom that you live in. And this, God leads you always to love. Always. This is a statement of love, loving God and loving others. Um, You're going to see this as the book unfolds more so, so we're not going to expand it too much today. But this is a statement of love. This is covenant love. This is how love works. You've been discipled by culture to understand that love is what meets your needs. It's about companionship. It's about your happiness. It's about getting your needs met. That is not the idea that we see in Scripture, um, especially in the Old Testament. No, love is about commitment. And Naomi is making this commitment. Does it build on emotion? Yes, but that's not the core of it. So God will lead you to love as you leave false gods. Um, let me, I'm going to recommend a book to you. It's, it's a book called A Loving Life by Paul Miller, and it's based on Ruth, and it just expounds how love works. And here's one of the things he says. Love only grows out of the soil of suffering. If you are not willing to suffer or to endure loss for something, you don't understand love. Now, we have all kinds of problems with this in marriage, don't we? Well, I'm only going to go so far, but you have to, like, do something. I cannot love you if you're going to be unlovable. But he says this, and it's so true. Here's why. Because self is always the barrier to love. So in suffering and loss, you have two decisions. One, I give in to self-pity, and I focus on it, and I'm absorbed by myself, or or I reject it. And I keep the object of my love where I keep my eyes. And what happens there is self dies. So this is what Ruth is doing, both with Yahweh coming under his wing and with Naomi. It's how love works. She's counted the cost, identity, family, future, husband, walking into Israel as an alien, as an enemy. Can I just ask you, you, would any of us do this? If you knew God was there waiting for you, would you do it? How much would you lose to be held by God? This is the question. Go where God leads. I want you to put this in your journal. Risk, uh, Ruth risked everything on God's goodness. Everything. 
everything. She risked everything in the hope that God's goodness extended to her, that God's covenant love extended to her, that his loving kindness, that his delight, that his care, that his provision extended to her. She risked everything on it. And so if we're going to do that, not only do we have to let go of false gods, right? Not only do we have to go where God is leading us, you have to know God's goodness. You have to know that. It has to be more than a doctrine for you. Um, Let me ask you this. When you think about God's goodness towards you, not just in general, are you looking through your circumstances? When you think about the life you're living, the hurts you have, the disappoints you're suffering, Is your idea of God's goodness mediated by your circumstances? Let's finish this. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Remember, she'd been gone for a decade. She said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means what? I don't know. I'm just asking. It's pleasantness, right? Don't call me pleasantness. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Mara means bitterness. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest. I'm going to caution you to make Naomi the villain. There's an act of faith in here, but she, her, she's building identity in her circumstances. Call me bitter because my life is bitter. God is obviously testifying against me. Was there, did she feel the weight of leaving and, and what they did that was wrong and sin? Maybe. But she still is identifying as bitter. These are my circumstances. This is who I am. She's seeing God through the lens of her circumstances. And notice she doesn't call God Yahweh. She calls him Almighty. El Shaddai. When you start building your understanding of God based on your desires not being met, he will become less and less personal to you. Always. So let's just look at a few ways God's hand has been at work in Naomi's life and Ruth's life. Just a few ways, knowing God's goodness. And know this, a knife is an instrument and it can be dangerous, like in the hands of a killer. What does it do? It brings death. But a knife in the hands of a surgeon brings life. Understand that. This is what's going on here. How are some of the ways God's hand has not been against Naomi? Hey, Naomi heard about God's visitation in Moab. She heard that there was grain and God is blessing his people. And her heart was prepared to go back to Bethlehem in humility. Right? And Naomi has a loving relationship with her daughters-in-law. I mean, that's like a miracle right up there just under the incarnation. Come on. (laughs) Let's just be honest with that. 
10 years, a decade, they both suffered extreme loss and they, they love one another. In fact, Ruth comes back with her. Naomi is remembered and received in Bethlehem, God's grace. Check this out. Naomi's prayers for Ruth to experience God's loving kindness are being answered through Naomi's suffering. Uh, do you remember that? At the beginning in verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you. That's said. That's loving kindness as, he is, as you have dealt with the dead and me. So Naomi prays God's blessing over Ruth, but it is Naomi's loss and pain and suffering that lead, leads, leads Ruth to attach herself to Naomi and bring her back into Israel. So God is answering her prayer through the most bizarre ways. Even through Naomi's suffering, God is working. Naomi's suffering is blessing Ruth. And Ruth's loss, because she left everything behind, will end up blessing Naomi and Israel and the world. And it ends with harvest. There's a reason that this is verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There's the hope. You're meant to see, in the midst of disaster, you're meant to see the crack where light is coming through. God is visiting his people. Harvest is here Covenant curse is reversed. How are you measuring God's goodness? How do you evaluate that? Um, Greg Morris, he's a writer for Desiring God, he said this. He said, if the job never comes, the spouse is never found, the wound never heals, and the death of good things happens, it should make our tears run their course. But... The day must come when we lay aside the weight of an unrealized life and run the actual race before us. That's for all of us. This is the call to risk everything on God's goodness, his love for you, his knowledge of you, his plan for you, his mercy for you, his loving kindness for you. The purpose of God's commitment to you is not to punish you. Naomi felt like it was, and I get it. So here's the turning point you need to think through. This idea of intentionally embracing loss and pain for the hope of greater gain. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done. This is what he does for you. Romans 8, 32. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, you will feel the safety and the security and the courage to live your life just risking whatever God puts before you on his goodness. This is what Ruth did. It's a miracle that she did that. It was by the sovereign hand and the grace of God that she did. So this is our call. This is our call. Risk everything on God's goodness. Let go of false gods. So what is moving your life? Every move matters when you join it to faith. If not, you are wasting it. What are you holding on to? Go where God leads. Um, you cannot both follow Jesus and live to avoid pain in your life. They are incompatible. And we're called to know God's goodness. And hear this. Nobody in here, I don't care who you are. This is one of the things we, we learn from Naomi. Nobody 
is beyond God's grace. Nobody. Nobody's beyond God's grace, ever. Do you, do you hear that? I'm going to give you a test on this. Who's beyond God's grace? You can repent. You can let go. You can throw your life on him. You can put your future on him. You can trust him right now. Every, every moment is a chance for a new beginning. That is the gospel. Jesus has secured this for us, and our call is to move forward in that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that you have given us in your word this story. Lord, two things. May we understand what your love looks like and feels like and works like as we watch this unfold, as we see Ruth make her commitment to you and to Naomi and to leave everything behind. May we understand that your love is like that. It pursues us at the cost of everything. And I pray that as we understand that, it will teach us, Lord, how to love like that. We lift all this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue.